0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today we all struggle to find time for the things we need to do. Our Google calendars, usually in multicolors, are kind of 21st century feats of human engineering. Perhaps the enduring popularity of the TV show Friends for young and old alike is because it evokes a simple time in the early 90s before texts, emails, notifications, and all the new layers of modern life. It was an era when people could still find time to hang out, to happen into unstructured time with friends, without an agenda, just a time to chill and evolve human relationships. For most of us, that seems like a quaint remembrance of things past. Today, if we hang with friends at all, and polling shows, we certainly are doing less of it with fewer friends. It is while multitasking, while viewing or participating in sporting events, attending concerts, doing something with kids, or something related to work. What many of us remember as the dorm room hangout, talk, music, drink, till late into the night, seems to be the stuff of nostalgia. But should it be? What are we losing by giving up that unstructured time? And is hanging out with friends while thinking about that long to-do list— simply a product market mismatch. We're going to talk about all of this with my guest, Sheila Limey. Sheila is an associate professor at Champlain College in Burlington, Vermont, where she teaches classes on literature, media, and writing. She's the author of two previous books and is the editor of a new edition of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Her essays have appeared in numerous prestige publications, and her new book is hanging out. The Radical Power of Killing Time. Sheila Limey, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's lovely to be here.
0: Great to have you here. Define what you mean by hanging out, first of all.
1: Well, in the book, I define hanging out as daring to do not much and daring to do it in the company of other people. But what that translates to is this kind of idea of killing time and devoting the time that you're killing to social interactions, so not simply killing time in antisocial ways or isolating ways, but actually in the company of others.
0: Is hanging out the same if if you're with friends and you're at a sporting event or a concert or, or watching kids?
1: Yeah, and um, that's something that I try to you know think about um, over the course of the whole book, and and I look at different instances of hanging out or different kinds of hanging out and how they occur, and there are certain Factors that shape those instances, so hanging out you know, with a friend while you're watching their kids is maybe not exactly the same as what you're doing when you're at a baseball game or at a concert, um, but the spirit is sort of similar, which is that you know, you're existing in physical proximity to other people, and you're doing it without too much of a set agenda that dictates what's supposed to happen in that instance
0: are we hanging out less today or are we simply doing it in ways that are different in ways that accommodate the the realities of modern life
1: well we're hanging out a lot less in person but we're hanging out a lot more on the internet And so in some ways you could say that, you know, maybe we're hanging out more than we ever have, but we're doing it in a more highly mediated sense um, through the use of these digital tools that surround us in our life. And one of the things I try to explore in the book is that that kind of hanging out is actually quite different, um, that we have a different kind of connection to people when we're hanging out through those devices.
0: Talk about that because in many ways, today we, we hang out on Zoom or we hang out on social media. Whereas perhaps many, many years ago, we hung out on the telephone when we weren't in person. The way in which the, the medium by which we're hanging out impacts the nature of the relationship.
1: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with control. And, you know, when we're hanging out in the context of digital devices, there's often a feeling of control that comes with doing that. And sometimes that control is in one way or another sort of imagined, but in some ways it's very real. Um, So for instance, if we're hanging out on a social media platform and talking to people and somebody says something that we don't really like, we can always exit that platform. Um, We can turn away from the conversation. We can ignore what they're saying or we can even go you know, to the extreme of blocking them so that we never have to talk to them again. Um, the same is true, of course, on a Zoom call or even on a telephone call too. We can, we can hang up on someone and we can end that conversation. Um, the stakes of doing that are much higher when we're hanging out face to face with people because if we try to exert those same mechanisms of control, there's gonna be consequences or we may be judged for our actions. So part of what I try to explore in the book is that hanging out in person is not subject to the same kinds of control that hanging out on the internet or via digital devices is and that's part of what makes it so difficult and uncomfortable for us these days.
0: And and part of what makes it uncomfortable, I suppose, is that there's a certain element of risk in doing it.
1: Yes, absolutely. That feeling that you don't necessarily get to um, control or dictate what's going to happen or what someone's going to say or how the events are going to proceed.
0: And is that risk intensified by the fact that time today at least seems to most people as, as so precious and so fragile that they can't afford the time to take that risk today.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, where I live in Vermont, um, it's it's a sort of rural state and a lot of people live somewhat spread apart, even though the state isn't that big. And one thing that I often notice here is that if you want to hang out with somebody, you've got to make a reservation like months in advance because there's going to be coordination that has to go into travel and taking time out of one schedule and things like that. It's not a casual affair. And I think with all that, that, um, With all that planning comes a greater sense that the risk needs to be worth the reward. And when there's a feeling that that might not happen, people tend to back out or they're less likely to invest in the first
0: place. And also, it's a question of, of how we establish the priorities. I mean, one of the things that I think happens is that when people make those plans in advance, months in advance, to hang out or go to a restaurant with somebody or go to a sporting event, that... Unless there's an economic stake involved, it becomes the easiest thing to cancel if something, quote unquote, more important comes along.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, Especially if there's this sense like, well, that meeting won't necessarily get me anything or it won't be productive in a particular way. It's just going to be us hanging out. Um, And so, you know, part of what I try to argue for in the book is that hanging out itself is very important. It's how we shore up our social networks and build our relationships with each other.
0: Talk about why it's important. Go a little deeper on that and and what it does in terms of our our, our social interactions. And one of the things you talk about that's so interesting is that the ability to hang out, the ability to have these social relationships is kind of a muscle that we have to exercise.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think of hanging out as almost like social exercise. Um, you do these activities and you build up your stamina or you build up your musculature for doing it so that the next time you do it, you know, it's a little bit less taxing or it's a little bit less exhausting. You get this, you know, this stamina built up and this greater endurance that comes from it, which is part of what's important about it. Um, the reverse of that, I think, happens when we spend a lot of time in isolation. We sort of lose those muscles and we lose that that flexibility and that stamina, so that each instance of hanging out or interacting with people becomes a little bit harder and a little bit more painful and a little bit more uncomfortable. So part of what I try to talk about in the book and argue for is the idea of that social exercise that comes through hanging out, which is not just good for us on a personal level, but it's also good for us in a social context and in the context of the democratic um, society that we live in.
0: One of the things that happened during the pandemic is that because of isolation, people got lazy or they got uh, out of the habit of, of, of that kind of social interaction. And like any kind of exercise, I suppose, it's easier once you're out of the habit or out of the rhythm to just not do it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think we all know that feeling of how hard it feels to return to doing something that used to be easy. And part of what feels hard in those instances is the reminder that it once was easier, that you could do it effortlessly. And now it feels like it takes so much pain or it takes so much uh, you know, effort on your part to do it.
0: The other part of it is that it takes so much planning. The, the the appointment culture that we live in is such that it really takes a lot of, of planning to make those things happen.
1: It does, yeah. Um, I have a couple of friends, you know, who... I struggle to see on a regular basis, even though I have the best intentions of seeing them on a regular basis. And one of them is even someone I work with. But in our normal working day, we do not see each other because we might even be working in the same building, but we're so busy with the things we have to do at work that we rarely get a moment to even talk to each other passing in the hallway. We're we're very, very scheduled in the um, things that we have to accomplish when we're in that environment. And then in the meantime, we keep trying to make a date to hang out with each other.
0: The other part of that is the degree to which we're geographically atomized, that, that people that may be friends that we might hang out with or might want to hang out with now live in another part of the country or another part of the world.
1: Exactly, yes. Um, I grew up in the Seattle area, and I recall in the Seattle area, um, when I was growing up there, my dad used to talk about how you know he worked in downtown Seattle, and he would make friends through work. But the people he knew for work, of course, did not live in downtown Seattle. They lived scattered about these other communities that were way in the hinterlands of the city, some of which could be an hour or more to access. So if you tried to hang out with somebody outside of work, there was an immense commitment that went into that um, in terms of like travel and planning and everything like that. And I think that's only become worse um, over the past several decades.
0: What do we see in terms of differences between gender differences hanging out and also single people versus couples? That's
1: an interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it. Um, one thing I've, I've noticed um, with relation to gender differences has come to me through the way that people have responded to the book. And I have been noticing that in reviews and in conversations I've had with people, that I have seemed much, received a much more enthusiastic response from women, um, who maybe are socialized to prioritize some of these activities that I'm talking about in the book, a little bit more so um, than men in some ways. Um, and you know, even though the types of hanging out that I talk about in the book, things like parties and dinner parties and jamming with musicians or attending musical events um, or even hanging out at work, even those instances are themselves not gendered. I think there are gendered dynamics to how this hanging out has to happen, um, and we often see that, of course, in relationships where you know um, things get divided along gender lines, and the men go hang out with the men, or the women hang out with the women.
0: And and talk a little bit about things like dinner parties, where it's a group, ha- a larger group hanging out, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I love a, I love a good dinner party. And I, I talk about dinner parties in the book, but I don't just talk about the good ones. <laughs> I also talk about um, some of the less good ones that I have attended over the years. And I do it, you know, for the sake of thinking about what it is that we feel that we risk when we enter into a social environment like that, and often why things can go wrong or feel so uncomfortable, um, or so tense in the context of a pretty simple event, which is you know hanging out and eating a meal with other people. Um, and I think sometimes what causes things to go wrong are big ideas and big expectations about what has to happen or what the outcome is supposed to be, or how the event is supposed to unfold, or even how people are supposed to act and get along at the event too. And I think sometimes that ends up sort of um, stymieing social relations that would happen. But you know, other times we go to a dinner party and we have a great time and, and we wish it would never end. And we're all sitting there around the table late into the night, still talking, and time is just slipping by and we don't even notice.
0: It does seem like the the core thing that determines that, or certainly one of the core things, is, is what you touched on expectation and that that seems to play such a large role
1: yeah um and i think that you know going back to the topic of social musculature and social exercise we tend to create larger expectations for social gatherings when we experience them infrequently um we sort of build them up to be like well if this is going to be my one chance this year that i get to see so and so or the one time that i get to hang out in this particular way everything needs to be perfect. It needs to look perfect. It needs to taste perfect. It needs to run perfectly. And that, of course, is a recipe for disappointment because nothing is ever perfect.
0: Another thing that you talk about that's so interesting is this idea of stories and that by the more hanging out you do, the more experience you have, the more stories you have to tell at forthcoming hangouts. Talk about that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think hanging out is itself mostly comprised of stories. Um, it's about, first of all, swapping stories when you're hanging out with people around a dinner party or in you know, another kind of social um, gathering. Um, a lot of what you do is you exchange stories. You tell a story, you listen to someone else's story, you say, oh, I had a similar experience once and you offer your story and conversation builds that way. But also in the act of hanging out, we're also creating stories often. Um, So we have experiences, we learn from each other, we kind of pay those experiences and those conversations forward, and they become stories that we tell in a future gathering.
0: So does hanging out favor those people that are better at storytelling?
1: Oh, that is an interesting question. Um, Perhaps. Uh, I will say maybe on one side. But at the same time, too, I think that successful hanging out is also about listening And we've probably all had experiences when we are spending time in someone's company um, and that other person is not a very good listener. And we feel like we could maybe just be, you know, telling our stories to the air um, or to no one at all. And we would have about the same effect. And that eventually, of course, works against um, the social camaraderie that could be built in that moment. So it is about being a good storyteller. But I think just as equally, it's about being a good listener.
0: Certainly one of the things that's that's different today is this sense of, and I I sort of hate the cliche of it, but of being in the moment when you're at, you're (laughs) hanging out or at a dinner party, whatever it is, but everybody has their phone out. Everybody's phone is handy, whether it's checking with the babysitter or whether it's a work call or whatever it may be, everybody is still on guard for what might happen. Yeah,
1: that's absolutely true. And, and I agree that the cliche living in the moment, you know, ends up feeling exactly like that, like a bit of cliche. But I I suppose what's embedded in that um, statement is the advice to remember that you are in a particular place in a particular time, and there are people who are there in front of you. Um, and, you know, you have a kind of primary responsibility and connection to those people as opposed to people who exist somewhere else, and, and maybe you do need to check in with those people or manage things, um, but living in the moment, you know, becomes about, like, a willingness to pay attention to the people who are right there in front of you as opposed to the hypothetical audience that exists somewhere else.
0: Accept that everyone else that's there hanging out, whether it's a small group or a large group, is, is doing the same thing.
1: Yes. And it's it's contagious. I mean, I, right. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it, the second one person sort of breaks the spell and picks up their phone, yep. it just becomes this, you know, the seal is broken and then everyone can do it. And then it just sort of builds from there. And pretty soon, you know, we've all swiveled our attention away to someone else or somewhere else who's not there in the room with us. And we stopped paying attention to each other.
0: Because there's also an ebb and flow to these things as there is to conversation where where it goes dead for a while and then you know maybe picks up again and that's the moment where everybody picks up their phone
1: (laughs) certainly yeah um i think uh in a hyper scheduled modern world the idea of downtime or idle time in which nothing is happening even for a couple of seconds has become a somewhat terrifying thing for many of us, this feeling that, oh no, I don't have anything to do for 60 seconds. What, what will I use to fill it? And you know, fortunately for many of us, there's a device that we usually have there that is very handy for filling that time. Um, but part of what I try to explore in the book is that we may not actually need uh, the help of that device to fill the time. And on top of that, we might learn from the behaviors that we could develop if we resisted doing that.
0: In people hanging out, to what extent do people, do you find that people need to justify it, that they need to to find some reason why they're doing it, as opposed to just hanging out for its own sake?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a really important question, and it's a really important angle of what I try to think about and explore in the book. Um, this sense that everything that we do um, has to be productive, that it has to have some sort of objective associated with it that is going to get us something or somewhere. And I think that enters into this feeling that hanging out has to be justified. There has to be some underlying rationale or some advantage that is going to come from doing it. And if we can't maybe measure that advantage or if we can't see its effects, um, very clearly or even materially, then we may come to question the purpose of hanging out itself.
0: And sometimes it's simply checking off that friend on your to-do list. I haven't talked to them in a while. Or we haven't gotten together in a while. We need to do that. Did it? Check.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, I know, which is a very sort of utilitarian
1: um, way to go about thinking about our social interactions. But I, I think it's something that for many of us is a
0: reality, too. Talk a little bit about sense of place and and the way in which place has an impact on all this, whether it's in a coffee shop or in somebody's home, et cetera?
1: Yeah, um, I think places and and spaces as well um, can have a big impact on what happens when we hang out with each other. And in the book, I I pick up on the sociologist Ray Oldenburg's um, theory of what he calls third places which are places that exist apart from our first places, which are our homes, and our second places, which are our work. We can think of them as sort of like intermediaries. Um, They're somewhere between home and work. Um, We don't necessarily own them, but we enter into them. And when we're in those spaces, um, Ray Oldenburg points out that it's very important that they be free or low cost to enter into. When we're in those spaces, um, there's not a real set agenda for like how we have to be there or how we have to interact with others. And so there's more improvisation. Um, that is able to occur, and so I'm thinking of spaces like coffee shops, like libraries, like parks, like town squares, things like that, where we enter into these spaces without a sense that they are ours personally, that we're personally responsible for them, or that we own them, and that we therefore get to control them. Um, and instead, we entered into this them with this sense that you know what happens there is somewhat shared, and that we're not going to be able to control everything that occurs. This is really important, I think, for a functional. To have access to these kinds of spaces And of course for a functioning society too Um, They're very important for hanging out Because they allow people to hang out um, On a sort of like equal footing Without someone else feeling like They have the final say or the final word Over what happens in that space Um, Of course though the coffee shop eventually has to close And the workers have to go home Um, And at the same time too uh, They facilitate this more improvisational Uh, kind of interaction um, where people are kind of coming and going and they're passing through and they're having conversations with strangers or with neighbors or with people who they otherwise might not get to talk to very much. The problem, as I explore in the book, is that we are losing these spaces and we are losing these places. Um, We are losing them mostly in favor of private spaces, which are harder to enter into and, of course, harder to hang out in.
0: Of course, coffee shops certainly are proliferating, and it's interesting that you talk about a third space because it, when, when Starbucks started, I mean, Howard Schultz talked a lot about Starbucks as being a third place. I mean, that yes. was in some of the original literature about about the company. Um, and, 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 you know, the idea that it be someplace that isn't territorial is so interesting. I mean, it's very animal-like. I mean, you've got to find a place that's neutral <laughs> territory to get together. Right.
1: And then, of course, you know, what's ironic about that, too, is, um, you know, some of us may remember the controversies um, that surrounded Starbucks in the 2010s surrounding who gets to be there and for how long. Um, there was those um, occurrences, there were much in the news about certain people being kicked out of Starbucks, and also Starbucks you know, locking down their bathrooms so that people couldn't access them, which made them, of course, much less into those kind of third places that Howard Schultz might have been originally interested in, or may have been even idealizing. And it made them more into controlled spaces where certain people were allowed to exist there and be there and others were not.
0: Do you see an increase in hanging out on the part of young people today?
1: Um, Not necessarily an increase um, in hanging out physically, Uh, but the young people that I interact with certainly as a college professor, and I mostly interact with people who are between the ages of 18 and 24, so not necessarily very young. Um, But for them, a lot of hanging out happens on the Internet. And if it doesn't happen on the Internet, it at least begins on the Internet. And then it grows into something that happens elsewhere. And, you know, I have a chapter that's called Hanging Out on the Internet where I try to explore some of these trends and talk about them. And I try to do so in a pretty, you know, judgment-neutral way. I'm not necessarily trying to say that hanging out in this way is is worse um, or is bad, um, only that I think it's sometimes lacking certain qualities that we get from hanging out in person. So we have kind of experienced this shift in our society where a lot of personal interactions or interpersonal interactions used to begin face-to-face in physical proximity, and then sometimes would sort of transfer over to the internet, and now it is more or less the reverse. Um, Many of our social interactions begin on the internet, and they only sometimes materialize physically in the real world.
0: Right, the extension of that, and you see this, I mean, I've seen it among teenagers, where they get together to hang out and hanging out for them means they're all on their phone texting other people while they're all (laughs) hanging out together.
1: Exactly. Although, to be fair, when I was a teenager growing up in the 90s, you know, we did the same thing with the telephone at times, too. And we would hang out in each other's bedrooms, and we would call someone on the phone while the other person was either listening in or sitting there with us. So, I get that these behaviors are not necessarily new, and I'm not trying to brand them as new and problematic in any particular way. But I'm more thinking about um, how things change when we transfer a lot of our hanging out activities to the internets. And um, one of the things that changes, of course, are our expectations about what we're able to control and curate for ourselves.
0: And finally, is there just a basic human need to do this, no matter how we do it, no matter how it ebb and flows, depending on technology and the time in which we live. I mean, we saw it, uh, almost a, a desperate need for it in some quarters during the pandemic, that there is this basic human desire to do this.
1: I think so. I think there is a basic human desire to do it. And I'm skeptical of language that would call that desire, you know, um, built in or hardwired or anything right. like that. But I think just over the social history of um, you know humans and how we've developed along with each other. We are social animals, and there is a desire for contact, for intimacy, and, and for exchange, um, for talking to somebody and have them talk back to us and being able to participate in a somewhat um, you know casual and improvisational way um, in social life.
0: Sheila Liming, her book is Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time, Sheila, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you.